I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's good to have you listening. The phrase hard-won wisdom got snagged in my mind as I read deeper into Oscar Hokia's debut novel. These are characters connected by blood or marriage who come of age in the bitter shadow of a loved one's mistakes. These are characters who see the repetition of those mistakes and their consequences through the generations. But Mr. Hokia clearly believes in redemption and loyalty and hope. And we'll talk about that today. Oscar Hokia is a writer and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa tribe. His new novel is titled Calling for a Blanket Dance, and he joins us today from Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Oscar, welcome. I've looked forward to the conversation. I'm so glad you could do this. Yeah. Hi, Carrie. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to share my debut novel with folks in Minnesota. There's a scene where... um, I guess this idea of hard won, even 11th hour, you know, the last minute kind of wisdom really crystallized mm-hmm. for me. And, and I wanted your thoughts on how you conceived of this scene. So Ever, our central character, is about to make a disastrous marriage, and his sister Sissy knows it, and she's wrestling with what would be the more loving thing to do. Is it to tell her brother what she knows of his bride-to-be? Or is it to let him live in his illusions? And I wondered if you'd talk about writing that scene and the relationship between the siblings and then this bigger theme that I'm talking about with these characters that take years to really understand the damage that they've seen and the damage that they're doing. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought up that, that particular chapter. Yeah, that was, that's a, that's a pivotal chapter lands right in the in the center of the the novel um and uh, so one of the dynamics that's at play there is i wanted to capture um just kind of the the far-reaching influence that ever's family has on him and um and kind of playing toward this kind of peripheral narration where we get uh we get a chapter narrated by his sister Sissy about his um, about his wife Lonnie Lonnie No No Water, um, and who is a very important character in the novel, and um, and I think you're right in that you know him um, his sister and um, his mother both um, are eventually become aware of what's happening um, with what's you know what Lonnie is is doing and. Um, I don't, I'm going to try not to give away too many spoilers. Mm-hmm. I'll say a little Understood. bit about Lonnie. Um, she, she is battling, you know, some addiction issues and um, her means of getting that those needs met are, um, you know, kind of illicit. And, um, and so she's going behind Ever's back and, and doing some shady things to, to make sure that she can get the, the drugs that to feed her addiction. And, um, and it takes some time for Sissy to, you know, a lot of us are kind of like that. Like we, we, we see it, but we don't see it, you know, like we can Mm -hmm. see things happening around us and, um, and we want to believe the best in people. Um, So that kind of cognitive dissonance happens where Sissy's, you know, kind of like, no, maybe it's not really happening. And, uh, maybe it's me, you know, maybe I'm just overthinking this and, and she wants to protect ever. You know, she wants to protect her brother. And, um, and I think that 
that dynamic between them shows the kind of level of connection that the siblings have. And also just the, the, I think there was a need to have some separation between what was going on at that time as a, with, um, as opposed to having like ever tell that story, I think it would Mm -hmm. be very different. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you would get the, um, the nurturing aspect that you get from sissy um, and also his, I mean, his mother as well has kind of been on in on it um, toward the end. Anyway, she, she, she realizes as well. I'm really glad you said that because you're right. Seeing this decision that he's made to marry, even though he clearly has some questions, but he's wildly in love, but, but seeing that, scene unfold from her perspective, I think really brings it back to the experience of the reader, which is I think we, every one of us has had a, an experience where you possess knowledge that is going to be hurtful to somebody that you love. And you have to make a choice about whether you're going to share the knowledge and watch the illusion shrivel, right, right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, in some ways, take the easier way out and tell yourself, "Do I really know what I think I know?" And let the mm-hmm. illusion sustain until it can't sustain any longer. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. And then I think that you know, you know, um, and a little bit of a detachment in that. You know, sometimes people will do, and I think Sissy is in this. I mean, does something similar here where. Um, she did, might not want to get involved like, okay, that's, you know, I'm seeing this, but is it really my place to say something, you know, like, should I, you know, disrupt, you know, what he, you know, his feelings and what he's going through. And, um, and I think that, you know, toward the end of that particular chapter, you get a real sense of Ever's kind of mentality at that mm-hmm. time. And it, mm-hmm. and he, and and you get the sense that he goes through the same thing Sissy goes through. You know, like he also doesn't want to believe it. Like he's like, no, that's not true. That's not what's happening. Um, and then he has to experience it for himself in order to really um, see what's happening, to be, you know, to be honest with himself. Yeah. Again, I think an experience that that many of us can take in, which is um, I'm about to learn something or I could learn something about someone who is, you know, in the most inner circle in my world, a parent, right? A loved Mm -hmm. relative. I mean, this is, in some ways, this is kind of the rite of passage of becoming an adult, isn't it? Mm, Yeah, I like the way you said that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the trajectory of the novel itself has, you know, Ever Gimisato kind of struggling with... um, with how to live with honor. I think that is the crux of the, of the novel itself is him trying to figure out how to get his footing without slipping into some of the cracks that um, some of, the, of, of our community members fall into sometimes, you know, um, whenever, you know, life just, you know, things aren't going, going well, you know, and, you know, then this happens, you know, with working class, working poor people um, often, and, you know, Ever's trying to figure out a way, how do I live with honor? And he's getting a ton of signals, you know. And so mm-hmm. Sissy and his mother are, you know, trying to give him a way to to do that. Like, you know, this thing is happening. They're aware of it. He's not aware of it. And um, and it's kind of, 
you know, it's kind of way of like, you know, there's, there is a secret that's, you know, that potentially a secret that could, you know, disrupt the family. You know, if they didn't say anything, then, you know, how would that um, alter their relationship in the future? You know, like what kind of animosity would, would um, build up if they didn't say, Hey, Lonnie's doing this stuff behind your back. We don't want to say it, but you know, this is what's happening. Um, So I think that it would alter the ending would be very different. That's for sure. I, um, I like the, the fact that you use the word honor, the word nobility, you know, mm-hmm. kept kind of drifting back to me. I, I felt like you were wrestling with this idea that even though there are circumstances that these characters live in and things they've seen and things they're struggling with, this idea of nobility or honor is, I guess, something that shows itself in ways that I don't think we're accustomed to thinking about. D- does that resonate? D- yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that um, um, I think that in Kiowa cult- well, Native culture, but in Kiowa culture specifically, there is like a um, like an unspoken. Um, value in living with honor like that's our currency if you will mm-hmm. you know like instead mm-hmm. of like an economic like i need to get rich um in kiowa culture um is where i see it mostly largely because that's where i participate mostly is in gourd dance culture but there is this currency of I, you know you got to live with honor you got to do the right thing um and not that you know not any of us are perfect but that that's what we're striving to do and um and I think that it comes it comes through in the novel, um, one because it is you know wrapped around Kiowa culture, but also that native in native culture in general, we're going through this process of decolonization, where we're mm-hmm. looking at the culture as a means for a solution. You know, like there's certain um, historical traumas that have occurred. You know, ever and his entire family are dealing with those, and yeah. um, and are you know seeking out cultural practices in order to find a way. Um, kind of back toward living with honor and um, keep staying on the right track. And I think that that's, you know, that's where that kind of, you know, nobility um, attempting to live with honor, attempting to do the right thing, taking the right steps and, um, and how that looks differently at, you know, each stage in Ever's life. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is why I said, I think this idea of what honor is, because I think if you say that to the average American, you know, an image of a military, you know, mm-hmm. person or somebody who serves the, the public uh, through maybe as a police officer. I mm-hmm. think we've got one dimensional ideas of what honor looks like. And I love the fact yeah. that you, you asked a lot of questions. I mean, can honor, can honor be seen after you've made a mess of, you know, the first mm-hmm. 25 years of your life, after you've been estranged from your child, after you've turned away from the people who loved you, is honor then mm-hmm. out of your reach? I sensed you were asking those kinds of questions. Yeah, I think that that is a, a reoccurring dynamic with the um, redemption, like you had mentioned at the beginning, um, about, 
um, Everett Gimisaro and many of the characters are living to redeem themselves. So, um, so, you know, like there's Lonnie No Water, who is, you know, very important and to the, to the novel, but also, um, Leander Chesna, who is also, mm-hmm. you know, he's still, he's starting out, he's young, um, but he's made, he's made a ton of mistakes. And I think that that's, um, a big part of the novel is like, you know, how do we, you know, how do we redeem ourselves, um, from making, you know, mistakes in our lives, you know, are we, um, you know, like you mentioned here, just are we past the point of redemption? Can, can we, or can we not? And I think, you know, what I, what I hope the novel does is that it leaves the reader in a space where, you know, it's not completely answered, you know, but it, it is, it, it, it allows for an opportunity for reflection, you know, like what, what is that? What is that point where we're like, okay, no, you know, this character can't come back or this character can. And why do we, you know, why are we judging in that way? You know, just that, that kind of deeper reflection. You know, I also got the sense that you were thinking about the perspective of redemption, whether mm-hmm. you've, as a person, have gone through your own, uh, you know, cycle of redemption and whether that means you are accepting that you are reaching for redemption. But then what it means to be seen by your community and by your closest circle as reaching mm-hmm. for redemption or having been redeemed. And I, and this, this um, method that you used, you know, to have the characters speak to us from their own perspective, but then to have the, these other characters in different parts of the book show us how they saw these characters was really effective for that. I mean, how clear was mm. that to you that um, that that's where, you know, that's kind of the journey you'd be on when you decided to use these different uh, these different voices, these different different narratives. You know, whenever I was gonna, I wanted to write a book that had you know peripheral narration within it, and some of the you know the reasons to use peripheral narration um, can be that you know, like there's a secret that the the main character doesn't know about, but the other characters do. You know, and I think that, you know, the overall it does structure, it does give a, you know, a familial kind of communal tone to the novel. Um, and it does, you know, enhance the dynamic of, of a blanket dance, you know, where you have multiple individuals coming up, but uh, coming up to the blanket to offer a piece of themselves for forever's healing. Um, mm-hmm. But also in that, um, in that I think that there are certain pieces of Ever's trajectory in his life and, and the mistakes that he's made um, that are better told through the perspective of his family, as opposed to like, say, if he said it directly. And, um, and I think that that comes from, you know, definitely there's, you know, like whenever I was younger and I empathize greatly with ever because, you know, I've went through my own like ups and downs whenever I was young, um, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty defiant. I'm still kind of defiant even now. Um, and, and so, you know, like having to struggle against that, you know, why am I so defiant? You know, you know, why do I, um, need to be, you know, um, I guess almost like, uh, um, I can't think of the word, um, activist type mentality. Like I need to speak out if there's an injustice, like, a, it's almost like if I see something negative happening in the community, I feel it's like almost personal, you know, like, mm-hmm. why, why are, you know, why is this violence happening to us? But I've worked in, um, with that risk youth and on the front lines for 20 years. 
And so I've seen everything, you know, like I've seen um, so much tragedy that, um, and it's, you know, in a, you know, because I see it on a daily basis that, you know, it, it is, it does feel kind of personal that, you know, our communities, we need to, we need to heal. We need to fi- figure something out. And, um, and so I empathize with ever in that um, as he is, you know, kind of trying to fix his life that he sees the work with youth and working with young people as a means to obtain his honor. Oscar Hokia is a writer and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa tribe. And his new novel is titled Calling for a Blanket Dance. He's with us from Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And I'm Carrie Miller. And you're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Um, You know, Ever's ideas of what it means to be a man reminded me a lot of a new memoir that I read and and uh, the author I interviewed named uh, Fred Joseph. The, the book is called Patriarchy Blues. And Fred Joseph talks about realizing mm. that his mother and his community accept, even at times encourage, this idea that violence can give you what you want and that that's what being a man is. And mm-hmm. I saw ever, and maybe maybe given what you've said about how you've shared some of the experiences that you've written into Ever's personality, maybe this is meaningful to you too, that you know, there comes a time, and, and this is really hard-won wisdom, when you realize that there is an emptiness to getting what you want when you've achieved it through violence. You probably see that mm-hmm. in your work with kids too, do you? Yeah. I think that it goes back to like disrupting the community, like seeing that violence um, causing more chaos in, in it, how it reverberates out, you know, to the other community members. Um, and um, I think that, I think that, you know, that's probably the, the dynamic that resonates most um, with, with me and the character in that, um, and that ever is trying to figure out how to not do that, not to become um, like that and how to not do some of the, make some of the same mistakes that some of the other males in his community um, or in his family anyway, have, have made. And, um, and I think that it it is, I think there is this kind of um, patriarchal element that is playing out and Mm -hmm. he's pushing, eventually he learns how to push back against it. And, um, and, and so each of his family members are giving him those signals. Like there is a strong sense of um, kind of a matriarchy against patriarchy dynamic within the novel. And, um, and the matriarchs in the community are trying to steer him in the right direction. And, um, and I think that in the first, um, in the first chapter, his grandmother, um, Lena stop um, asks, you know, at the, at the very end, you know, will ever, will my grandson ever be cured? And, um, in this sense of, is he ever going to be able to come back from the trauma that he's witnessed um, at the very beginning? And is he ever going to be able to um, kind of find his way from that kind of history of, you know, patriarchal violence that reoccurs throughout the novel? And it is, and it is reinforced. It's reinforced in the community um, it's reinforced with being, you know, a working class, working poor environment where options just aren't, 
you know, aren't there. Opportunities just aren't there. You only have a certain direction that you're going to kind of end up going, how to live in between those two spaces and how to um, actually find his way out of that kind of patriarchy, that kind of toxic masculinity is, you know, the phrase we all use. And, um, and he's like permeated in that kind of um, mentality, especially by the time he becomes a teenager, he is, you know, very much, um, very much, you know, an aggressive, um, misogynistic, toxic individual. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even his, you know, family members are kind of scared of him. Mm-hmm. And so he has mm-hmm. to, and like you, like you mentioned before, he's kind of made a mess of his life by the time he gets into his early twenties. And then he needs to like um, pull himself away from that trajectory and start to listen to the many individuals who've already given him the signals um, to, to do, to do right by his community, to live with honor and, um, and find a way to be a healing force as opposed to a destructive one. You know, I think you mentioned at the beginning um, that you identify uh, most with the Kiowa tradition. Is that right? I do. Yeah, my family is is pretty embedded in Kiowa, like gourd dance culture. But you also have Cherokee Nation uh, traditions in your family as well. I do. Yeah, I live in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, the heart of Cherokee Nation. I work for Cherokee Nation. I work for Indian Child Welfare, and okay, um, right. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, I uh, participate, you know, I do stomp dances, which are, which is a Cherokee kind of an Eastern tribal um, um, custom. I participate there sometimes, you know, like every once in a while I might, mm. I might do that. And, um, but m- for the most part, I tend to, um, I tend to gourd dance. That's more of what I'm habituated to and kind of powwow, Southern Plains powwow culture, traditional powwow culture. Um, that's what I grew up in. So my question is, because you were mentioning the the conflict in some ways, the push and pull between the patriarchal influences and the matriarchal influences, in Kiowa culture, which one, mm-hmm. I guess, which one um, has the most influence in, in the community? Is it the matriarchs or the patriarchs? So the, you know, Kiowa culture is a bilateral, follows bilateral descent. So it follows descent from both the mother and the father. Um, mm-hmm. So it's pretty equally distributed. I think it manifests differently um, than it does in Cherokee culture. Like Cherokee culture traditionally is matriarchal. Um, mm-hmm. And so we are matrilineal. So like my mother is Cherokee, so I'm Cherokee. So we follow it down that line. And um, so with um, Kiowa culture... I mean, it, it is, you know, it's an old warrior society. And so you see a lot of the remnants of the conflict and at, at the point of colonization um, still existing within our culture today. So where um, some of our dances are ritually performed in a sense of, um, you know, maybe 200 years ago were in conflict um, with the U.S. government. And then today mm-hmm. they're performed in a sense of, um, in service to the military, to the U.S. government. So like U.S. military um, service members are honored um, at many of our dances. Some of our societies are specifically for veterans. Um, and some of our, you know, some of our dances are, or some of our societies are, are, um, are not just veterans, but, you know, will include, there's a, you know, component to almost every society that has a dynamic of honoring veterans and military service, um, which kind of plays into the novel, 
where you have Vincent Gimasaddle, who is who serves in the Korean War, and mm-hmm. we see you know you know the effects on him um, going through that, and um, and how he engages with the community, and how the uh, the community you know um, looks at him with being a military veteran, and then we also have Ever Gimasaddle, um, who also serves in the military, but during peacetime, um, and so we have one being in an extension of the other and um, and showing the dynamics and how that plays out within like a traditional Kiowa Comanche um, community. And, and so, and so the dynamics within the Kiowa culture, as far as like bilateral descent, following both the male and the female, that, um, that there is, you know, it, you know, it might lean toward that kind of military service when it comes to some of our, our customs. And, um, but the, the, the actual, I guess you would say the influence would be pretty balanced in that uh, both the men and the women are, you know, participate within this culture and, um, and have the equal sway over the community members. Um, you became a grandfather in, in February, is that right? I did. Yeah, I had my first grandson in February. So yeah. I'm sure as the characters do in the novel, you're thinking about what this precious grandchild is going to learn and what you want to tell this grandchild about what it means to be born into these cultures and carry the Kiowa and the Cherokee and whatever other cultures, um, you know, in their spirit. So what have you been thinking about what you want that child to know? Um, well, you know, just kind of, um, um, I guess an acceptance of who he is as far as the inner tribal, um, dynamics that make up who, you know, his being. So his mother is from, uh, San Felipe Pueblo, which is a tribe in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then my son is, um, he's Cherokee, Kiowa, like myself, you know, and Mexican like myself, but his mother is Portuguese. So, um, he also has that wow. dynamic within him as well. So <laughs> <That's> a lot. <laughs> That's a it, lot it is, yeah. And just to know, you know, I think that it's important to be aware of your diversity in your lineage. You know, like mm-hmm. I, you know, like I can say that you know I grew up within Kiowa and Cherokee communities, and so that's kind of what I know. You know, um, my you know my identity is probably closer aligned to those dynamics than it is to being half Mexican because my father's from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it is important to acknowledge it, you know, and I think that's one of the dynamics within the novel that Ever Gimasato, I don't know if Ever Gimasato really has any kind of identity issues in the sense of like, oh, I don't know who I am. I think he knows mm-hmm. who he is. Um, I think that, um, his family is trying to pull him one direction over another, you know, like, you know, the Kiowa says like, no, no, come this way. And the Cherokee says, no, come this way. And the Mexican says, no, come this way. And, and so um, in his mind, he, he, he understands the, the diversity of who he is and, um, and moves forward with that. And so we see him kind of push back and assert his identity in the last chapter. Uh, and I think that's one of the dynamics that make the, that makes that last chapter so special is that, um, is that he has, he, you get to see somebody who is in full acceptance of who he is, you know, who has the ability to navigate all these spaces and without, without a hiccup, you know, without a, a misstep, right. he just does it because that's, 
you know, and I, and I, you know, like that's my, I put that in the novel. I mean, you know, they say, write what you know. So that's what I did. And that's kind of mm-hmm. how I've always been. Like I grew up in Cherokee communities and Kiowa Comanche communities. And so that's kind of just how my life has been. And, um, and, you know, I have influences from my dad's side, you know, especially when I was really, really young. And so I've never really had much misgivings about like, okay, I'm, I'm half Mexican, half native. That's just, that's just the way life is. Um, but, and so it ever has that same dynamic within him as well. He's just kind of doing his thing and he is who he is. Um, but that's what I would, you know, like I hope that for my grandson as well is that he can accept the diversity of his lineage. You know, there's a very strong likelihood he's going to grow up Pueblo. You know, his mother is from a Pueblo community. They live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so likely culturally, he's going to probably be more centered Pueblo. Um, but I think that I would like to, you know, be there to to show him like, you know, you know like there's this other side to you that, you know, you know, acknowledge that you are, you know, diverse in this way. And I think, you know, sometimes that doesn't always happen. Yeah. One of the things your grandson, you know, when he spends time in Oklahoma with you and your family, I mean, he's also going to be part of a very diverse community in Oklahoma. I, I get the impression that a lot of Americans don't know how diverse Oklahoma is. I lived and worked there for quite a while. Um, there, you know, there's, there is a rich diversity of native culture there. And I think sometimes that's ignored because there are large parts of the state that are just primarily white. But I would gather your grandson will experience that part of it too, even if he's growing up in New Mexico, he'll have an understanding of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty close. So like they were, my, my son was just here this last weekend and with the baby. So, um, so he'll, he'll be here quite a bit. And, and that's the thing about Oklahoma is that, you know, there's 39 different tribes here, you know, Mm -hmm. historically it was once, you know, called Indian territory. And so whenever the removals were happening, um, this was kind of the the landing spot. And I think, um, I think the U S government had at one point thought they were going to send all the tribes here. But, you know, like, you know, certain tribes got here and then they, you know, kind of ran out of steam to to move all the tribes out this way. And so what we ended up with, we had, you know, Indian territory. We have 39 different tribes, tribally, very diverse place. Um, and so you get that intertribal dynamic within the novel. So you have, you know, like, you know, like I've mentioned characters that are Kiowa, characters that are Cherokee. You get some of that intertribal conflict that we have with each other. But we also get a lot of that um kind of that camaraderie, you know, like we're brought, we're brought together under a history of colonization. And so that dynamic ties us and that binds us together. Um, but every tribe has this unique, it has its own language. It has its own cultures, customs, you know, we have similarities like Kiowas and Comanches have similarities. Um, Cherokees and Creeks have similarities. Um, but each tribe has its own unique quality about it. And I, I think that there is, um, I like to talk about the diversity in rural states. You know, Oklahoma has a very um, interesting history in that it, it was, you know, initially um, land that was that other tribes had lived here, like the Osage were already here mm-hmm. before the U.S. government decided, I'm just going to plop these other tribes on your land. Um, mm-hmm. And then then there was the Oklahoma Sooner Run, you know, like where at the end of um, at the end of the Civil War. Um, the U.S. government opened up Oklahoma land 
um, for people to just to come in and settle. And so that's where you have the large number of white people who have moved in um, to settle the land. And um, and so then it started to create a, a cultural diversity there with that. And um, and so, you you know, there is, you know, we all know now the um, the Tulsa race massacre, right, you know, like a lot of right. people didn't know that for a very long time. But those of us in Oklahoma, we've we've known about that for a very long time. Um, so I'm glad that the rest of the world is kind of catching up about that. Um, and so there's a, you know, a large number of, of black people that live in Oklahoma. And there's now um, with Mexican um, migrants coming in, like my father, who came from Aldama, Chihuahua, Mexico, um, coming out here to work the peanut fields, um, to work the plant nurseries. Um, so now we have a, a real healthy number of Mexican people in Oklahoma. And like right here in Tahlequah, where I'm at right now, in the heart of Cherokee Nation, we have neighborhoods that are entirely um they're all Hispanic, all Mexican neighborhoods here. And mm. people just don't know about that. Yeah, and, um, right. and I'm hoping that the novel does bring some light to that kind of diversity, those kind of dynamics that exist here. Yeah. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Oscar Hokia is with us today. He's a writer. He's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa tribe. And he is out with his debut novel, highly recommended, called Calling for a Blanket Dance. He's talking with us this morning from Tahlequah, Oklahoma. I I wanted to just touch briefly on the work you do with Indian child welfare. How how long have you been doing that kind of work? I've been working with at-risk Native youth for about 20 years. I started in Santa Fe, New Mexico at um, Intermountain Centers for Human Development or Intermountain Youth Centers. And I worked in an all-Native group home with... um, Pueblo, Navajo, and Apache youth, and mm-hmm. um, and then went on to work at the Santa Fe Mountain Center, um, where I worked um, primarily with um, Native communities in New Mexico. Um, so, and then from there, I came, you know, back to my um, back to my back to Oklahoma, where I was born and raised, and um, and started working with Indian Child Welfare. So, over you know those different organizations, I've worked about twenty years. Um, with at-risk Native youth and that, you know, it shines through in the novel, you know, like that's, and I think that's probably going to be a big part of my writing in general. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. likely going to look at youth work and family fiction, you know, like that's going to be, um, that's what I'm, that's what I know. They say, write what you know. So that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and so, you know, it influences my work greatly in that I see it as this, avenue for empowerment for characters. Um, I feel like sometimes my fiction, I'd want it to do some of the decolonization work, you know, and, um, and help um, individuals heal and overcome some of the trauma. And I, you know, just feel like because of the trajectory of my own personal life, that working with youth has kind of brought on that, the ability to kind of overcome some of the obstacles in my own life. Um, And so I kind of give that over to, to the characters that I write about. How many, since you've referred to this a couple of times or you've alluded to it, how many years mm-hmm. of your own youth, maybe it went beyond your your youth, would you say, not that you were lost, but that you were, well, that you weren't living with the kind of honor that you, that, that you really had to go through this to come out on the other side the way the characters in the novel have done? How How long have your of your life? Were you dealing with that? 
Um, I guess, I don't know, man. I think that a lot of us in the community, you know, whenever we're dealing with some of the historical trauma have, um, you know, trying to get our footing in life that, Mm -hmm. you know, like we make, we make poor choices. And um, also that, you know, we're, you know, especially for males, a lot of times the signal is that you're supposed to be aggressive. Like that's how you, that's how you communicate in the inside, you know, inside of those environments. We're just, you know, like Lawton is a um, kind of a gritty kind of place, you know, like it has some rough elements in many, Lawton, Oklahoma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where um, some of our neighborhoods are kind of, you know, we're dealing with like gang violence and, you know, you know, drugs and stuff like that are in the community. So um, it kind of creates a hostile environment. And so um, aggression um, can come into play with on, on how you survive, you know, like if you're, if you're not aggressive, then you're going to, the streets are going to eat you up. Um, So that, you know, that dynamic plays out has played out very much so in my personal life. And Mm -hmm. also, you know, like with the main character as well, you can see that in, as, as the novel progresses. And, um, and I, you know, like definitely probably into my young adulthood, I would say um, before I started to like, calm down a little, <laughs> you know, so I would <laughs> say probably into it? my, tw- at least my twenties. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, by the time I became a father, it was like, a, you know, completely different story. You like, you start to, um, look at the world differently when you have a tiny baby in your hands. And so, you know, right. I'd, I'd say right around the time that my kids were born, my first son Jasper was born. Then, you know, you start to like, um, you start to behave differently. And I think it's just maturing as well. You know, and I think a lot of people can empathize with that part of it, yeah. even if they didn't grow up in sure. a rough environment, like um, um, with a lot of hostility and gangs and things like that can um, identify with um, getting to a point where you see your kids, you know, like, okay, let me try to, let me try to live a little bit better, a little bit different than I was before, be a little bit less defiant, um, and still, still working on that. I'm 46. I'm still working on that defiant part of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you were in your twenties when Jasper was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mid twenties. Okay. All right. Um, so I've asked you if you'll read an excerpt of the novel, which, which kind of, um, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How would you describe where we are in the evolution of Ever's life? and the family members around him in this scene. Okay. Yeah. So we have, um, so this is uh, this scene that I'm going to read from is in the second to last chapter of the novel. And at this point ever is, um, had just gone through a divorce and he has, um, and also just kind of, you know, kind of hit like um, hit rock bottom to a certain sense in that, you know, like multiple things happen where he like goes to a divorce and then um, his um, job, he loses his job because of the funding isn't there anymore. So they start laying people off. Um, and so he has to like piece things together in order to survive. And so um, as he's going through this hardship, you know, like he leans on his, on his family. And, um, and so in this particular scene, the um, it's his family kind of stepping up and, and, doing their part to try to help him get through this, this sticking point in, in his life. Okay. Okay. And so I'm going to read here. All right. 
Hank Quitone had the microphone in his hand, and he announced, I'm calling for a blanket dance. This is for my nephew, Ever Gimasaddle, and his kids. The company he worked for lost all its funding, so he was laid off, and his car was repossessed. He's having a hard time getting his kids to and from school or asking for any help you can offer. An elder Botone handed Ever a gourd rattle. Then I saw Hank's wife, my cousin Lila, carrying a gourd club shawl, baby blue, into the arena and heading for Shandy. The shawl was too big, so Lila folded it in half. Shandy struggled to hold the large shawl over her shoulders, shifting this way and that, the way Littles did. None of them had any regalia. They wore jeans and t-shirts. All four stood alongside the blanket, waiting for the drummers to start the song. I've seen many blanket dances in my day, growing up coy. But there was something especially heartbreaking about a single parent down on their luck. Many of us, most of us, could see ourselves in Ever, like we had either been where he was or feared we'd end up there. We were taught to give, or else more would be taken. Streams of people walked into the arena, while drummers and voices filled Red Buffalo Hall. We crumpled bills in our hands and tossed them onto the blanket. We stood next to Ever and his three kids and danced alongside. Must have been a good 30 people out there. The line of people made a half circle around the drum. Ever and his kids stood to one side with the Pendleton blanket spread in front of them. Some gort dancers moved through the arena while the singers' heavy and low voices carried through our bodies. We danced the way Kyle was danced when called by our people, by our ancestors, to help each other heal. Witcha! Hank Quitone yelled into the microphone. So beautiful. All the dancers dipped a little lower and rose a little higher to the drum beat. And the singers prayed for our spirits, calling for our ancestors. Step into the arena. Dance with us. Honor this young man and his children. By the time the song was finished, the blanket was filled from edge to edge with crumpled dollar bills, and we were filled with a renewed energy. Sometimes a blanket dance can fill up your spirit, and this was one of those moments. I'll never forget it. A gift. Novelist Oscar Hokia reading from his debut novel, Calling for a Blanket Dance. You, in that scene, you speak to what... I guess from the outside could look like an exercise in, you know, embarrassment or shame, right? This proud young man is identified with his kids as not having much and they're going through some really tough times and here they are, you know, in the center of this arena and everyone's looking at them, but that's not what this ends up being. And, and I, I got the sense that you were, you know, writing right toward understanding why this is not an exercise in shame, you know, for the circumstances that the family has found themselves in. Could you talk about that? Yeah, no, yeah, I think that's, that's important. Like, I I guess I didn't even see it like that when I wrote it. Mm -hmm. I guess it's so common in the community that if somebody needs help, we help them. You know, like a, there is no sense of shame in that sense that um, that economically um, someone had fallen on hard times. I think that I think this goes back to being a part of the working poor, you know, that 
we we often struggle like that like that that's you know like we're you know what they say we're like two checks away from homelessness and so mm. um and so that's kind of the situation that ever Gima settles in i think that's a lot of that's a situation a lot of natives are in you know like we're 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 economically not advantaged like if we fall on hard times we can't ask for a relative or Oh, heck, can you float me $10,000? You know, like I can, you know, I can't even ask a relative for probably $10, you know, like we're, we're, you know, living hand, hand to mouth kind of situation. So, um, so this isn't, I guess I wouldn't see it. And I haven't, you know, like I've seen these blanket dances where, you know, people need something a lot, you know, sometimes it's like, um, um, you know, maybe they need, they need money to get to their appointment. They need gas money to get to their doctor's appointments and they don't have the resources to do it. And so they'll do a blanket dance and then people will come out and give what they can so that they'll, you know, they can make it to the doctor doctor's appointments for the next couple of weeks. And, um, and so it's just so common in our community that, you know, we're helping each other that I guess we wouldn't see it like that. And so, um, and I, and I, you know, I liken it to like, if you were at church and mm-hmm. the, somebody in the community needed something and you passed around the collection plate for that person in the church. I think it's kind of like that. Yeah. It, you have a beautiful stanza from a Scott Mamaday poem at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed him a couple of years ago and what he said about how influential the sense of place is to him and this idea that the ancestors carry that sense of place in their stories struck me as something that might, that might make sense to you. So I wanted you to listen to a little bit of this interview where he talks about that. I have a blood memory. If I may put it that way, I remember things that happened before my time. I think that that uh, something that exists in most of us, though, maybe we don't know it, but uh, my grandmother, for example, could talk about places where she had never been. It's a blood memory. And I think it's passed down by means of story. What do you think, Oscar? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, I, it does in that. Um, and, I, you know, I love Mama Day. I love Mama Day's writing. Um, a big, big influence on me as a writer. And um, But I think that, you know, one of the dynamics that I wanted to capture within the novel were with the... Um, the juxtaposition between the two landscapes as well as the tribe. So we have Kiowa on the Southern plains of, of America. And then we have uh, Cherokees in the Ozark Hills and, um, and how that whenever, you know, they say that, you know, during the, the marches, whenever they were removing us from our homelands and marching us here, one of the things that struck us as Cherokee people when we got here is that how much, um, this area looked like our homeland, you know, with the rivers and the the hills and the um, how, you know, the forested areas, you know, like it was, it looked very similar to, mm-hmm. to the way it looked back in, in North Carolina, Kentucky, that area. And so, um, and so we made this area our, our home. And, um, and so I think that that definitely plays out in, in how I look at my, characters that and myself i mean like you know in the acknowledgments i acknowledge you know Tahlequah and lot in oklahoma because they shaped who i am you know like those are the landscape shaped who i am and um and i think that 
you know, Cherokee people are very different, you know, from Kiowa people, you know, people from the outside looking at us might not see those differences, but having grown up in an intertribal environment, you know, I can very much see it. And, um, and, and that's part of the impetus for the novel is to capture that, that diversity in, in landscape as well as in cultural practices. But, um, you know, just kind of how we carry ourselves in the world, the way Kiowa people carry ourselves and the way Cherokee people, we carry ourselves um, in the world is shaped by, you know, our environment. Let, let me ask you a question that I asked Scott Mamaday, which is, mm-hmm. can you imagine being the writer that you are without having the landscape that you grew up on in imprinted in your in your mind and your imagination. I mean, would you be a very different writer? Even if you were even if you you were born into a native community, raised somewhere else, is there something mm-hmm. that is so essentially Oklahoman that landscape about the kind of writer that you are? I think so. I think that it is that I think it's that detrimental in in shaping us. Like the you know, our landscape um, kind of has a major influence on our on our personalities. And um, I think that if I was born somewhere else, I think that, you know, it would be very different. And and so and that's one of the reasons why that um, regionalist writing is so important. And we can really show the diversity in Native literature in, in you know, like someone from New Mexico is going to have, is going to write very different than someone um, who is Kiowa from um, the southern plains of Oklahoma? Um, the landscapes are just radically different, and so I think that it does. It shapes our voice. You know, like you know, voice is is super important in in my writing, and um, I think that it's you know, like that's one of the dynamics that I, I spent years working on was the voice, and um, and so you know having the ability to capture that Kiowa voice, you know, came directly from my community. It came from the landscape. It came from, it came from Lawton. Um, it came from influences from both Kiowa and Comanche community members, you know, having grown up in Lawton and, um, and then also hearing the difference between uh, Cherokee voice uh, up here in Tahlequah area. So um, I think that it would, I think, you know, without a doubt, and I hope that, you know, regionalist writing for Native literature kind of expands and we get to hear more voices from like Diné people and um, from Lakotas and just kind of hear the the, the differences in, in, in the way we carry ourselves and, you know, what we, what we write about. Mm-hmm. Oscar Hokia's debut novel is titled Calling for a Blanket Dance. He joined us from Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Oscar, thank you. Love the conversation. Thank you. No, thank you so much. It was exciting to to be here, and I very much appreciate this opportunity. Mm